tend not to be a silver lining kind of guy because I think that that's dangerous thinking. It, it leads to romanticizing adversity and romanticizing pain. And yet there is an opportunity in this experience right now, which is to ask oneself, what is it that I have learned about myself and about the world that I can use to go forward when the pandemic ends? Because as I've been saying repeatedly to people, and sometimes I feel like a lone voice in the wilderness, the pandemic will end. And so the question I think for you is not so much an answer to the problem of growth and remote lifestyle, but, but really, what is it that I am learning about my life right now that I can take forward and move forward with? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. It is hard to believe, but we are now approaching, at least in the U.S., a full year of COVID life. The last time I was on a plane, the last time I was in a restaurant, the last time I was in a grocery store without a mask, the last time I saw some friends, family, colleagues, it was well over a year ago. And it's crazy that it's only been a year. And at the same time, it's crazy it's already been a year. And my life has changed tremendously beyond wearing masks everywhere. But even more so, I've changed. There's a poem that we read sometimes in boot camps that really feels appropriate to how I'm feeling right now. So I wanted to share it with you. It's called Impossible Darkness by Kim Rosen. Do you know how the caterpillar turns? Do you remember what happens inside a cocoon? You liquefy. There in the thick black of your self-spun womb, void as the moon before waxing, you melt. Conceiving in impossible darkness, the sheer inevitability of wings. I have no idea what my life will look like 12 months from now. I don't know if I'll still be wearing masks, only engaging socially outside, still using copious amounts of sanitizer. But I do know that I'll be different. I know that I am different. For now I find myself in the cocoon, and so much of who I was in the life before is liquefied. I am past the point of no return. There is no going back. And now I really find myself in this terrifying, disorienting, and incredibly exciting place of endless possibility. For in the darkness of uncertainty, I am feeling the sheer inevitability of wings. I think I felt this even more intensely in July when I wrote a letter to my three daughters as I do from time to time. Here's a piece of what I share with them. In all of this, I feel something stirring in me, something that needs to be changed. I find myself wanting to be even more present with you all. I find myself wanting to soak up the special moments even more. So as I come through this, I want you to know that I am committing to be different. No more distracted time. No more distracted evenings. No more phone obsession. No more too serious, too busy to play. I'm here. I want to be with you. I want to play with you. I want to be an even bigger part of your life. And as I approach what feels like the emerging from my cocoon, the question I've really been sitting with is this. Who is emerging from this cocoon? What has he learned about what matters most that he's taking forward with him for the rest of his life? 
After spending the last seven years routinely moving from country to country in Latin America, Nathan Lustig's nomadic life was upended by the coronavirus. As the founder of Magma Partners, Nathan became accustomed to a transient lifestyle as he worked to build his early stage venture firm. And he comes to Jerry really looking for guidance on how to best deal with sense of overwhelm amidst a scaling organization. But he quickly realizes that even more has changed than just how he does business. He's changed. And he and Jerry explore a bigger question. What is it that I'm learning about my life right now that I can take forward? How can I grow from this moment? Enjoy. True listening is rare. And yet, we believe listening is among the most needed life and leadership skills of our time. We found listening skills to be core to our work with clients and teams. And we've seen that a culture of listening really sets up a container for deeper conversations to happen and allow for deeper inquiry. Listening supports better decision-making, smarter problem-solving, and more innovative solution creation. So join us and other members of the Reboot community for Reboot Your Listening, a unique virtual workshop facilitated by Reboot Coaches, which will take place on March 19th at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. We will introduce you to the core listening concepts and practices that have formed the foundation of our coaching and group work since Reboot's inception and give you the tools for implementing these practices in your own leadership. To learn more and to register, head to Reboot.io slash Reboot Your Listening. That's Reboot.io slash Reboot Your Listening. Hey, Nathan. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, tell us um, how you identify, you know, what's the company, where are you located? Give us, give us the coordinates, if you will. Sure. So I, I run uh, Magma Partners, which is an early stage venture capital firm in Latin America. I'm normally based either in Mexico, Colombia or Chile uh, for the last few years. And I think I've been in Latin America for about 10 years now. And I'm from Wisconsin originally, which is where I am now sitting out the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. And what part of Wisconsin? I'm in northern Wisconsin, uh, like about four hours, three and a half, four hours north of Madison. And so Magma's got, you said about 15 folks? Yeah. On the staff? Yeah. And, and what's happening that's causing you to question a little bit of the growth strategy? On one hand, it's been it's been really really good because I was way overloaded before, and one of the things why I think we're a pretty big staff for the amount of money that we manage. We're a small fund still. Uh, mm-hmm. how, many, how much money do you, do you manage? So we we do we've deployed about twenty five million so far, and we're right close to closing our our third fund now, which will be mm-hmm. around fifty. Mm-hmm. So we are having growth, but. Um, for 15 people for that amount of money is is a lot generally right and right part of what the reason behind having people is to be able to build a lot of the infrastructure in latin america that we just kind of take for granted in the u.s around startups um and so that's that's kind of why we have the bigger team Mm -hmm. and the tough part about having a bigger team is just that one is is every additional person adds an extra layer of complexity to everyone else. You have an extra nexus. And then in addition to that, just making sure we can pay everybody with the right amounts, uh, keep the team, retain talent, 
uh, not lose people because we have we have really good people. But with a smaller amount of money, you can't really pay high salaries that maybe we'll be able to keep people for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm noticing is uh, in your description of what Magma is going through right now, you sound a lot like the CEOs that you back. Yep, very much the same. I always talk about how Magma is a startup in its own right. Mm -hmm. And so you've got both the challenge of being an investor, which, you know, we met, we first met at the VC boot camp that we did in January, January of this year. And so there's that one hat that you wear, and then there's the startup hat that you wear, the startup CEO, if you will, hat that you wear. You know, one aspect of your personality, which which I remember vividly from our first meetings, and which we referenced a little bit just just before, is your nomadic lifestyle. So I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, because you because you didn't reference it now. You said Mexico, Colombia, Chile, but tell us a little bit about that as well. So I, I from Wisconsin originally, ended up in Chile in 2010 as we were company five in the Startup Chile program, which was basically a way for the Chilean government to build up the entrepreneurial ecosystem there. Mm-hmm. And I went with business partner, the two of us spent six months there, and then uh, we ended up selling our company and he went back to the US and has done a, a traditional kind of tech business career. And I decided to stay to learn the rest of Spanish and kind of see what I could do with uh, the network that I had made during that time there. And that, kind of rolled into starting starting Magma. And mm-hmm. we did it out of Chile to start, but after a year in Chile, and Chile's a small country kind of at the end of the world, it's really far from everywhere. I started to travel with the entrepreneurs when they were expanding to Colombia or to Mexico or raising money in the US and kind of helping translate, not, not like English to Spanish, but translating culturally to US investors to help raise money. Because when we first started, only $500 million got invested in all of Latin America from Mexico South each year in VE. And last year it was like four, four and a half billion. So it's really grown. But at the mm-hmm. beginning, we had to really spend time. And that spending time equated to me flying around with the founders. So I started in, I think, middle of 2015 doing this route where I would go Chile, Colombia, US, Mexico in a loop. And mm-hmm. up until I was already trying to scale that down um and that was some of the stuff that we talked about at the boot camp and went through um i was already trying to scale that down but the pandemic forced a full stop and i hadn't been more than six weeks in the same place in a row since 2015 and now i've been in the same place like probably with you know 10 miles radius um since march Mm. so it's been a big change how's that feeling no it's really good it's really good it's good yeah I'm surprised that one, like there's some stuff that I thought I couldn't do without being in person. And mm-hmm. now the, the list of that that I actually can't do without being in person is way smaller than I thought. Mm-hmm. So pretty much the only thing that I can't do in person is the in-person due diligence for the bigger investments we make. Everything else, and most surprising to me, is raising money from, from LPs. Before, we had never raised money from somebody that I hadn't met in person, and now we've closed lots of checks since March, mm. which mm. was very surprising to me. One of the things that I did that I was like already thinking of, like, that I'll never do this again, was I flew from Chile 
to Mexico overnight, which is a 10-hour flight, something like that. Landed in Mexico, did two days of meetings, and then flew the next day to San Francisco uh, to speak at a at an event about LATAM startups, and then flew back to Mexico, and then I just lapsed. Mm. Couldn't do it. And so I, I definitely will not ever do that again and won't miss it. Just even adding up the hours of going to airports, going to being on planes, just that basic part uh, and looking at I've read more books since March than I have in the last two years. I go on long walks most of the days here. I'm lucky to be in a spot where that's possible. So, so far, that's been actually a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, we're talking about both the growth challenges that you've experienced or the challenges of growth in the last few years, the relationship between, say, being an investor and being a startup CEO, because there is definitely parallels here. But now we're also talking about pandemic lockdown life, if you will, and some of the revelations that you have about it. So let's draw that out a little bit. Tell me about the biggest challenge that you have uh, running Magma um, and or or helping to lead Magma is probably a better way to put it. Tell me about the biggest challenge. I would say the overarching biggest challenge is that we don't really fit into the model of what a venture capital firm has looked like in the past, both between our investment strategy of we invest in a lot of very small early companies and then we can write a check for as small as 25k all the way up to 5 million and that's weird for people um, I think you know the fact that we have partners in Argentina, Chile uh, me wherever I am and then a Chilean who's in the US that's weird that we're distributed and only see each other once a year or twice a year in person the fact that LATAM probably won't look like the US market in terms of venture capital probably won't be something someplace where people just keep raising bigger and bigger and bigger funds deploying bigger and bigger bigger checks there's mm-hmm. more stuff that's broken so when we try to do things that maybe we think solve a problem in latam we get a lot of pushback from people who either don't know the region as well or are worried that we're trying to do too much and and to be to be fair like trying to do too much is definitely a real worry uh, i would be worried if if uh, a startup tried to do too much too so I understand that same feedback, but I think our, that is our biggest challenge: is figuring out how do we, how do we navigate this in a spot where a lot of people tell us, "Hey, what you're trying to do sounds really good, but eh, it's maybe a little out there," with models or structures or whatever we're we're, we're trying to do, where we're we're pretty convinced that what we're the way we're thinking about it is right, and finding the the right people that buy into that and are willing to do that for a long term. So I, I think, yeah, that's our, our biggest issue is we just don't, we don't look exactly like what the model should be. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because we, we basically survive by being able to raise money into a fund that can pay for a team and so to, that can solve the problems that we need solving. And if we only go after and do a fund and we only make money off of a management fee, on the early stage part to pay for the, the costs, then we have to go for a very big amount of capital to be able to pay people. But then if we do things that are like portfolio services to the companies, or if we want to uh, look at things like 
you know, investing in companies more like IndyVC has done, which we think is awesome and is a cool thing for LATAM, but probably doesn't fit in the strategy of a traditional venture capital firm because it's different risk profiles, different potential return, all that sort of stuff. We get a lot of pushback from investors, from LPs, from institutions that say, well, why do you look like that? You know, those guys who are successful look a different way. One of our investors told us at one point when we, we built out an agency model for the services for our portfolio, which is, we just kind of looked at the Andreessen model and said, those guys are doing it right. We think this mm -hmm. is smart for LATAM. It's an even bigger problem. When we came with that, one of the investors said to us like, well, you're not Andreessen, so you shouldn't do it. I just sort of had to laugh at that. And they were sort of joking, but, but kind of not. Um, mm -hmm. And we get a lot of that pushback. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, because uh, he's a good, close friend, I can tell you that Bryce Roberts from NDVC also experienced a lot of pushback. Um, and I think you're right. He is trying to do something um, that's important and different and really interesting. Um, I want to take you back, though, to something you were talking about. We're trying to do too much. And just before talking about doing too much, you quickly reference the flight from, I assume, Santiago in Chile to Mexico and then back. Um, talk about doing too much. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to fall into, you know, I have to do this next thing or um, I'm going to miss this opportunity or, you know, this is a really good opportunity to speak at some place or to get noticed or to find somebody who believes in our mission and maybe will give us money. And that I was starting to, to get better at that. I knew it needed to change by the end of last year. I would say November, December, I was like, no, nah, this, this is unsustainable. It's not, not going to work. And now we have more people. Why do I need to keep doing this, right? Can de delegate better, delegate more. Started to give people more responsibility, which was awesome. It's been really good. The same thing happened at the start of the pandemic with video calls. Uh, so it was very easy to just fill the calendar with lots of calls. And I think the week that was the worst, I had like, you know, 40 calls. Mm. And uh, some of that you have to understand raising money for a fund and doing investments. You're going to have lots of calls, but not 40. That's, that's too much for anybody. And so I, I started taking stock of that and saying, this is just too much. And by the time you're on call, I don't know, for me, three or four of the day, not nearly as good as I was on call one or call two. So figuring out how to you know, do less, you know, moving slow, going slow to go fast. Um, I think that that's been really important over the yeah. last bit. Yeah, the line that I uh, often quote my old boxing coach is, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, fast is deadly. And she learned that in the army, but she applied it to boxing. Um, and I apply it to life. You said it's easy to be, this is my word, seduced into that one more flight, that one more phone call, that one more of this. What makes it easy to, to have that happen? Well, for, for me, one of the things that I realized in, in boot camp on some of the walks with some of the other participants was that for me, it was easy because I'm good at it. And it's easier to focus on the things that you're really good at and continue to 
focus on those and keep going on those rather than saying, well, you know, maybe there's this whole piece over here that if I could make better and focus more there for a while, it would make everything better. And mm-hmm. so that was something that, that was a huge takeaway for me from that. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to kind of implement that. So, you know, we, we made a few references to, let's call it life in northern Wisconsin, just south of the U.S.-Canada border. <laughs> um, life being different. You know, before I think before we started recording, you, you or maybe after, you made reference to the fact that you've eliminated calls on Wednesdays. What do you think the shift was about? How did that happen? Well, I think part of it was just being getting to an end of the week and realizing that all I had been doing is staring at a screen, talking talking to people, and all this other work had been piling up that was a lot of the really important stuff just wasn't getting done. Mm. And so I think that was one of the the first parts. And then two, I was just not, I wasn't sleeping as well as I think I should have been for being in a place where there's no distractions (laughs) and it's quiet. And, um, you know, I think that, and then the frustration of just being like, I'm not getting the important stuff done. So that made me just say, what's one step I can do and just clear a day. Um, and, and it actually was going back was part of a process, um, that I had been doing for a while that kind of got screwed up in the pandemic was that I think all the way back to like 2017, when we first started raising our fund to the, I was still basically the only person at full time and had two other people who were part time and, and helping. And I found that on Saturdays I would, go to one of my one of my favorite cafes in one of the cities I was in and somewhere in Latin America I walk around go to go on a nice walk get to the cafe get in there and I'd probably work four to six hours and it would be my most productive four to six hours of the week and realize that this is because I would have no distractions no whatsapp um, no email coming in and so I would after a while I said, well, this is stupid. Why am I doing this on a weekend? Why don't I just do that on Friday morning? And Mm. so I was started, I had been doing that since probably middle of 2018, trying to basically block Friday mornings to do the, the important stuff. And when I got to Wisconsin here in the pandemic, that broke because I didn't have any barrier anymore. There was no walking to the cafe on Friday. It was just Mm. everything. So then I just extended it to a full day. So that became the, the genesis of the no calls Wednesday kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And try to turn, try to keep my phone in airplane mode as, as much as possible that day. Another thing that I had been doing was do, using the uh, send later so or send at the end of the day or send tomorrow because <laughs> – the worst thing is you get you send the email out and then you get five emails back immediately. Then mm-hmm. you don't make any progress and you get distracted onto something you probably already solved that isn't as important yet. Mm-hmm. And that has been really really helpful since mm-hmm. since going to that. So I, I really like the the hacks that you've created for yourself, and um, and I'm wondering if there's a larger opportunity here. I'm fascinated by the image 
of you being in constant motion. I remember in one of our conversations back in January, you talked about uh, this, I had this image of you um, with the bags never really unpacked, moving from place to place to place. You're smiling now because you, you know what I'm talking about. And and because I looked over into the corner over here, and yeah. uh, the bag that I had traveled with is still like half of it is still in there that I just never have used <laughs> since being here the, the entire time. So you know, I like the path that you're going. And I like the fact that you can, you're still not fully unpacked because it actually leads me to this other question, which is, um, in what way has it served you to not have roots? Now, if you remember from the boot camp, a big part of the questioning pattern that we created at the boot camp is to really look at the patterns of our lives, to look at the question of how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? And more importantly, how have those conditions served me? And one of the things that I think that you experience is this sort of constant motion, this constant, right? I mean, the bag's still not unpacked, even though you're living with your parents in your home state. So what's up with that, Nathan? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think I think the idea of of not not pack or not unpacking and being ready to kind of do the next thing um, or take advantage of all the opportunities that are out there. That and maybe unpacking represents the you know focus on a couple of things, only one or two things, rather than you know trying to do everything. So if we look at if we look at what you've presented and in coaching terminology we'd say it's the presenting agenda right so the presenting agenda here was um, you know managing the growth managing the bifurcated nature of magma where it's kind of a startup but it's kind of a fund and trying to do both and then as we unpack it no pun intended we start to see that even before a pandemic what you had was a highly remote organization with people in lots of different countries. But as we unpack it even further, what we see is that the founder, i.e. you, has been kind of committed to um, not staying in any one place for any period of time. Now, that's given you an advantage. It's enabled you to fly to the U.S. and support your, your founders or fly to Colombia or fly back to Chile. But as we start to unpack it even further, you, you start to see the disadvantage. Flying for 10 hours and then turning around and flying right back and then collapsing. We talked a little bit about COVID before and we both noted that we were both very, very sick in February. And the irony is I was sort of in a similar trajectory. I did, like I did something like 21 cities between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day. And, uh, but I was on a book tour, so it was really important, right? <laughs> um, I'm teasing. But I think that there's a similarity, and I, I really recognize this. In my book, I talk about mistaking motion for meaning. And, um, you know, I think that the opportunity exists here for you to look at things a little bit askance, a little bit of a different way. Instead of seeing the problems within magma, which don't really sound like complicated problems, it's growth. 
it's a consequence of success. And yet there was something unsustainable about the way you were living. And then the world forced you to stop. Just sit the fuck down. And yet you still found yourself with 40 phone calls in a week. And so on the surface, we could sort of say, well, this is a consequence of fundraising. This is a consequence of trying to do business in Latin America. This is a consequence. There's all these external forces, but we start to realize that's actually not the case. And so then you step in and you kind of life hack. Friday mornings, Wednesday day, all day, Saturday, right? You create these structures. And then I asked you about unpacking. And you looked across the room and you're still not unpacked. And that's really curious. It's really interesting. Nathan, how old are you? 34. And you've been doing this for seven years? Yeah, around seven, yeah. What do you want from your life? I think uh, trying to figure out how can make an impact on solving problems in the world um, is, is kind of like an overarching thing that I've always been interested in, even from being a little kid. And that's kind of like on one side, but then on the other side, like personally, I want to make sure that I have, you know, enough that I can have a relaxed, good life without having to worry about, you know, where's the next money coming from, um, you know, getting to that kind of stability and being able to kind of just work on the things that I think are interesting and want to do I think is, is I don't really want to be forced into doing something that just because I have to, right, for, for money or like I'd rather, I want to be able to have a lot of choice on kind of what I do. In my book, I refer to those as lemon drops, having enough lemon drops. You remember that structure? Yeah. yeah. So let's imagine a world in which you have enough lemon drops. How will you spend your days? I think, and it's, it's interesting because I talked to a few friends about this for we had like a you know a 10-year conversation around this like how would our lives change if we actually had whatever you know 10x more or whatever you know right whatever the amount would be and i actually don't think that much would change in in what i would do i do think that i would be able to solve some of the overuse problems with with money which would be very nice to be able to do but in terms of the overarching like i really like working on solving problems and, and working with very smart people who um, are building things. I think that's, that's just fun. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think that much would change. Probably, you know, I would structure things a little bit differently and be able to probably focus on a couple, probably fewer things than I do now. But yeah, I don't think much would change. Look up into your left again and look at that bag. Would the bag be unpacked if you had enough lemon drops? Probably. I, honestly, like I thought about doing, when I was traveling, I thought about having unpacked versions of each one in, in, a, mm -hmm. in a specific, in each, each one of the places I would go uh, to not have to. That's a, that's a, that's a bulletproof coffee life hack. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I, uh... The question I think 
that I would have you consider as you sort of are stepping into the middle of your 30s, which is this next phase of your life, this, this time period, right? So much of our 20s is spent building and so much of our 30s is beginning to harvest the fruits of that labor. And then so much of our 40s is really starting to reconsider the way we've labored so that in our 50s, we're in our capacity to sort of give full expression to that. And P.S., you know, that's where I am right now, right? I think part of what's, what's there for you is to, to really um, not call into question because I think that it needs to be called into question, but because I think that, you know, I want, I want to bring your attention back to that flight from Chile to Mexico and Mexico back and then collapsing and coming into the boot camp saying to yourself, this is not sustainable. And yet you look at the bag and you say, if I had enough lemon drops, the bag would still be unpacked. Or more specifically, I'd still have multiple homes that I would move from place to place. I don't think I would do that. I think I think that is was more of a, a a fear of like not being able to do stuff. When now I can see a bunch of that just wasn't necessary um, mm-hmm. because of the force function of pandemic life. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I just wouldn't do, and that's off. So so that feels like powerful insight. And I want to reflect it back. It's it's the realization that beneath it all seems to be a wish to not be constrained from doing the things that you want to be doing. There's a corollary wish, which is to be of service. That manifested in constant motion. The experience of being trapped in a cabin, I'm imagining it's a cabin, it looks like a cabin from behind you, on a lake in Wisconsin with mom and dad. The magic, the realization has been that um, being constrained doesn't necessarily mean you can't do the things you want to do. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, in terms of solving problems, working with people, there really hasn't been a change. And that's been really good. And you successfully raised money. Yep. Which right? is, I was surprised because we had never raised money from people we hadn't met in person before, which was a very nice milestone to not have to do that, not have to fly to a random place uh, around to, to make that happen. So, so look, um, there's, I, I, I tend not to be Pollyanna and I tend not to be a silver lining kind of guy because I think that that's dangerous thinking. It, it leads to uh, romanticizing adversity and romanticizing pain. And yet, there is an opportunity in this experience right now, which is to ask oneself, what is it that I have learned about myself and about the world by being forced into a cabin on a lake in northern Wisconsin with mom and dad um, that I can use to go forward when the pandemic ends. 
Because as I've been saying repeatedly to people, and sometimes I feel like a lone voice in the wilderness, the pandemic will end. It will not be magical. It will not disappear. As most of the health experts tell us, the virus will be around for a while. But our capacity to respond to the virus will improve. It will take a long time, but it will be there. And so the question I think for you is not so much an answer to the problem of growth and remote lifestyle, but, but really what is it that I am learning about my life right now that I can take forward and move forward with? Now there's a lot of stuff already. Give me, give me a few. I mean, one thing that, that hit home again that I, I sort of knew, but just sort of say, eh, you know, it's not a, not a big deal. Is like, I need to be close to a, a way to do outdoor exercise easily. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in college in Madison at, at Wisconsin, five minutes, you're on a bike path that you can go 50 miles and not see anybody in most in, in Chile where I was living was you can't do that. You could walk some stuff, but you couldn't, you couldn't get out and like, you know, do just a bike ride from there. Didn't work. Colombia fairly similar. Um, the places in Mexico similar. So finding, knowing that I need to be near, whether it's a big park or something to be able to just get out the door and go, uh, mm-hmm. because if not, then it just doesn't happen. That's like a big thing that I figured out. And what about the, the, the daily choices about how you spend your days? What have you learned about that? I think that, I mean, just saying no a lot more to stuff and really trying to focus on just the, the stuff that really moves the needle. I do think there's, there's an interesting thing about like, you know, when you're back to twenties to going to forties is like, you have to kind of say yes to most things in your twenties and then start to say no to most things as you get a little bit more established and successful. But there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that maybe like, you know, taking calls that's like, maybe there's a 1% chance that this could be interesting. Probably shouldn't do that anymore. At first I would take them as meetings and I'd spend, you know, whatever time it takes to get to the meeting, then a meeting is always longer than a call. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's in-person, you got to do more stuff and then the walk back or the taxi or whatever back. And then I probably two years ago, year and a half ago, moved that to mostly calls, which is better in terms of time management and being able to figure it out. And now just saying no to more of that, not even taking that. Cause if it's like a 1% shot of having being something interesting, I probably shouldn't be doing that today. I should be delegating that to someone on the team or just saying no. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, the subtitle of my book is leadership in the art of growing up. So I'm a big fan of talking about the path of growing up. And I think that one of the most profound skills that we develop in that pursuit of growing up is the art of saying no. There is a tremendous amount that one can do, but that doesn't mean that one should do it all. And so, you know, if you go back to the early constructs you're talking about, I would like to have enough lemon drops so that I'm not constrained. Now, I think what you're seeing is, and this is part of that growing up process, is that constraining actually can be a really positive experience. 
especially when it's self-constrained and it's about, it's coupled with the self-awareness. I could take this call, but I choose to leave my Wednesdays free. I could add one more client. I could do this one more thing. But the cost of saying yes is so high that it may be worth saying no and exploring saying no more frequently. And so to bring it all the way back to, Jerry, we've got problems, we've got growth and things like that. I think that Magma is at this point where its managing director, its CEO, actually has to increase the frequency with which he says no. And by constraining the business, it actually will grow in a healthier way. Interesting. Right? Say more about that interesting. No, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And in certain aspects where we've done that, um, it, it has worked and it's worked well. Um, you know, we put in a, a kind of an online diagnostic form to quickly say no to people that clearly it just doesn't fit, right? Um, and looking for ways to, to get to that no faster um, on things that we just know we're not going to be able to, to execute on. So I think, uh, I think it, is, it is a good thing to I think I'll go back and kind of look through our processes and figure out where we can start saying no earlier and faster and, and better. And, I, you know, I, I think it, 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 at the risk of sounding like either your father or your older brother for a moment, if we extend it into our life, into our 30s, the opportunity is to couple the saying no question or, the, or assertion with a question, which is, what is my work to do? Not what is the opportunity that exists, but what is Nathan's work to do? Uh, how do I want to spend the next 20 years? And how don't I want to spend the next 20 years? Right. Um, and I think that using such questions to constrain one's curiosity enables a distillation and a refinement so that that which we express creatively in our life is actually a truer, more pure sense of our essence rather than just like, okay, I can go here. Okay, I can do this. Okay, I can do that. Does this make sense? Yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting, and uh, I think it's it's definitely something I'll I'll have to think about more to uh, reflect on because it is a. Uh, I mean, I think you're right. I think you are right of kind of figuring out where where do I want to be, uh, and when you do raise a new fund, it does make you think about those things because it's a ten year commitment. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, thinking about are these the people I want to be with for the next uh, 10 years, both on, you know, the types of entrepreneurs, the partners in the team, the people who are backing us, all that sort of stuff. And also the problems too, that, that we're looking to help solve, you know, are there specific ones that are more interesting than, than others that care about more? So yeah, thinking more along the, what does it look like in, in a longer 
kind of zoomed out view. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll elaborate on your last question and then I'll leave you with this. And I'll, uh, you know, as a good coach, I'll just leave you with questions and no answers. <laughs> um, you said, where do I want to be? The corollary question I would leave you with is, who do you want to be? And you can reverse engineer from that. Right? You can reverse engineer not only your work, but the life that you're leading by aiming the target. You know, one, one of the best pieces of, of advice I got when I was writing the book came from my editor. She gave me so much. But one of the best pieces when I was struggling towards the end, she said, write the last paragraph and then write your way to that. And I'm going to give that to you as well. Write the last paragraph and then write your way to that. When you're 54, who do you want to be? And then allow that to define the steps between. Because you'll come out of lockdown. You'll end up in Latin America again. And who do you want to be then? That's your choice. Good. It's a good question to ask. Nathan, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, It's also, first of all, it's just great to see you. And uh, I'm really enjoying the fact, the picture of you slowing down and being on a a lake. So do me a favor when you're all done. Send me a photo. Will do. Will do. And uh, great to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate that. All the good questions and digging in. You got it. You got it. You be well now, and we will talk soon, okay? If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. Reboot Portfolio Circles are an effective and unique way for VC firms to provide ongoing support and professional development for the CEOs and the leaders inside their portfolio companies. With our Portfolio Circles, the Reboot team partners with you to identify the CEOs or the leaders you'd like to support, and we take care of the rest. Each group is led by a skilled Reboot coach and includes six to eight leaders from companies inside your portfolio in similar roles and stages in their journeys. We bring them all together to support each other in their personal and professional and leader development. Now hear from Evan, who is a participant in one of our portfolio circles. My name is Evan Liang. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Lean Data. Most of the other CEO groups I've been in are very business-focused, issues-focused. We're trying to solve problems together. And the Reboot Circle is very different in the sense that we talk about the issues, but more around kind of supporting each other. 
And it's not around problem solving, but more around the CEO support from an emotional perspective. I think all of us need some sort of support group. You need friends and family. You can't do it on yourself. There is a lot of stresses that come with the job. And having an avenue to uh, feel like you're not alone and get that emotional need that you might not be able to get from your team because you don't want to seem vulnerable as a CEO. So those would be the reasons I would say to check it out and to go in with an open mind and, and see for yourself if it's something that helps you. Overall, it's been a great experience. To learn more about Reboot Portfolio Circles, email us at portfoliocircles at reboot.io.